Derek's face was stony and etched with rage as he sat in the dark cab staring at my house. As they described it, the police found his blog where he wrote about his obsession with one of the girls who lived next door. The most disturbing true tales of terror. I could kill you right now if I wanted to. No one would ever find you. Israel Keys, most known for murdering an underage girl in Alaska, dismembering her body and dropping the pieces into a frozen lake. Featuring narrations by the best in the business. She grabbed me by the throat and by my hair and pushed me under the water again. I can honestly say I have never been so scared in my life. I'm your host, Chad. Join me every Thursday on Disturbed True Horror Stories in your favorite podcast app or online at disturbedpodcast.com for the most immersive true horror experience. This month, I'm making a trip back home to Michigan. I have the Missing in Michigan event, which is virtual, that I'm helping with, and there are, of course, friends and family that I look forward to seeing. I'm driving. The trip from Atlanta to Detroit is about 11, maybe 12 hours. That's a long day in the car. All of that time spent driving northbound on I-75 means that at least once, and more than likely two or three times, I'm going to pull into a rest area either to use the facilities, stretch my legs, or both. And each time I see a rest area, I think about this case. I think about Jane Baraboo Snow traveling with her sons. I think about the horrible things that happened that day. And I reflect with a mix of grief and gratitude. Because Jane Snow's death made travel a little bit safer for everyone else. I just wish that it didn't have to happen. I wish that things were safer before she left her home in West Michigan with her boys, headed for the Upper Peninsula. Because if we'd been more careful, more respectful, more responsible, perhaps I wouldn't be telling you her story today. So come with me to an isolated stretch of I-75, where Jane Snow and her children met a devastating fate in an unassuming setting. Tuesday, May 15th, 1979. Jane Snow and her boys, aged 7 and 9, are making the 383-mile, or 615-kilometer trip north from Grand Rapids to Escanaba. Jane was raised in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Since her divorce a few years prior, she'd been planning to return to the UP, where she would raise her boys close to her family. Her parents and siblings were waiting for her visit, and they had big plans for the week. Jane hoped to line up a job and a new place to live. You see, the crime rate in Grand Rapids was getting to be too much for her. She didn't like living where she was, but on her nurse's salary, she couldn't afford to move to a safer, more desirable area in the city. Her housing dollar went a lot further in Escanaba. 
Plus, there was the lure of Lake Michigan and sandy beaches for her kids to consider, not to mention the added bonus of her siblings and parents nearby. About three hours into the six-hour trip, Jane guided her car into the Loon Lake rest area just south of Gaylord. This was a good spot to stop, not just for a bathroom break, but to stretch your legs. The rest area has picnic tables and a pond. It's a nice place to refresh in the middle of a road trip. When Jane pulled into the rest area, there were no other vehicles present. It was just her and the boys, as well as their pets, a cat and a dog, which were traveling with them. The trio entered the rest area to use the facilities. When the boys were done, they hurried back to the car to walk the dog and check on the cat. With those tasks complete, they ran over to the pond. It's about 7.30 p.m. and the sun is going down. There's about 30 minutes of daylight left. After playing at the pond for a few minutes, and we can't say how long they were there, but long enough for them to notice that their mother was missing, they returned to the rest area. First, they knock on the women's bathroom door. Mom? They call out, Mom! But there's no answer, so they look around for Jane, but they don't see her. Then they go back to the women's restroom and push the door, but it sticks. The door doesn't glide open the way you'd expect it to. So they push the door again, and as they do, they realize that their mother is the reason the door won't open. She is collapsed on the floor behind the door. With the door finally open, they can see that their mother is badly hurt. She's still alive, but barely. She's been stabbed, stabbed repeatedly and violently. There is blood on her clothing and hands, blood on her face and on the floor. They run to the phone to get help, but they are too small to easily reach the phone. The older boy hoists the younger brother up so he can dial, but the phone isn't working. They can't call for help. The boys decide that the phone isn't working because they need to put money in to make a call. They return to their mother, their bloody, battered mother, and dig through her purse for a dime. Then it's back to the phone to call for help. But again, the phone still isn't working. These poor boys. They don't know that the phone isn't working, not because of money or lack of money, but because of vandalism. The phone itself is broken. These two little boys are alone with their mother's body, and it's getting dark, and they are the only ones there. They make a difficult decision. They run out to the shoulder of the freeway, the nearly deserted freeway, trying to wave down a car and get some help. When someone finally stops, the adult checks on their mother, who has died from her injuries, and puts the boys in their car, driving north on I-75 toward Gaylord, where they locate a police officer and advise them as to what has happened. The boys are shuffled off to a foster home for the night, as their mother's remains are photographed and checked, then she's delivered to the medical examiner. While the ladies' restroom at the rest area is a mess of bloodstains and crime scene tape, the Loon Lake rest area is closed to visitors. And the Michigan State Troopers investigating the murder aren't the only busy cops that night. Just a third of a mile down I-75 on the southbound side, another trooper is busy. He spotted a man hitchhiking, and he pulls over to caution him not to do such a thing. It's illegal. But he offers him a ride to the next exit. The officer isn't concerned about the man he's picked up. He doesn't notice anything unusual about him. He does make a note of his name, John McGauley, 
and he learns that his passenger is headed south to Pontiac, a Detroit suburb, hoping to stay with a friend. Magali tells the trooper that he was fighting with his wife and needed some space. On Wednesday morning, Jane's case makes the press wire, Woman Murdered at Gaylord. Also on Wednesday, her autopsy is performed. Twenty-three stab wounds made with a wide-bladed knife. Jane's clothes were not disrupted, and there is no sign of sexual assault or robbery. They do take scrapings from beneath Jane's fingernails. Jane Snow was a small woman. She stood about five feet tall and weighed about a 100 pounds, but she did not go quietly. It's clear that she fought for her life. In addition to the stab wounds, her wrist is broken. With an attack this frenzied and vicious, her killer, and I do think this attack was perpetrated by just one person, likely a man, her killer would have been covered in blood. They would also have scratches on their arms, hands, neck, or face from Jane's attempts to defend herself during the attack. When the trooper who picked up a hitchhiking John Magali learns of the murder at the rest area, he leads the charge to locate the missing veteran. Within hours, they find Magali, who has a warrant out for his arrest in Rhode Island, at the home of a friend in the city of Pontiac. Twenty-eight-year-old John Magali looks like a promising suspect. He's an ex-Marine, a Vietnam veteran with Mad Dog tattooed on his forearm. One of his friends explains that everyone called him Mad Dog. That was his nickname. Magali is also known to carry a knife. The knife is described as a show knife and was kept in a leather case that Magali sometimes wore strapped to his leg. The same friend tells police that John sold the knife and no longer has it. Coincidence? When Magali is picked up by police, the shirt he's wearing has blood droplets on it, but he insists that the blood is his own. He'd cut himself when he broke a glass while arguing with his wife. Police take the shirt and it's sent to the lab in Grayling for testing. While troopers in Otsego County, the site of Jane's murder, work the case, they find their workload suddenly doubled when yet another murder rocks this usually sedate area. You see, a few days before Jane was killed, the body of 16-year-old Laura McVeigh, missing from Hubbardston, which is a town in mid-Michigan, was found near Cadillac. We're going to talk about Laura's murder in the next episode. But they've got Laura's murder, and then Jane is killed on Tuesday, and then on Saturday, May 19th, the body of 17-year-old Victoria Livermore is discovered by mushroom hunters on a two-track dirt road, just over the Antrim County line. Livermore, who is from Roseville in the Detroit area, is a high school dropout who lived at home with her parents, and she was last seen leaving a party on Friday night in the Detroit area. She'd argued with her brother and left on foot. It appears that she was hitchhiking and got picked up by the wrong person. Livermore was beaten to death, her body left in a blanket and a curtain dumped on the side of the road. It doesn't take long for the police to match items found with Livermore's body to items missing from a cottage in Mancelona. The owners of the cottage, Mr. and Mrs. Joseph Scola of St. Clair Shores, they lead police to their son, 29-year-old Ramon Scola. And listeners, I have to think that the troopers at the Gaylord Post are feeling pretty good right now. They have three murders, but they have two suspects in custody, and both of them look good for the crimes they are accused of. 
You see, Ramon Scola, he used his parents' cottage to murder 17-year-old Victoria Livermore. And John Magali, he was picked up in a bloodstained shirt after hitchhiking away from a murder scene. The celebrations, however, are short-lived. While the case against Scola is strong and holds up to scrutiny, in fact, Scola will end up spending nearly 30 years behind bars for killing Livermore. He's already been released, and he's done his probation. In 2021, he's a free man. Magali, on the other hand, the case against him falls apart. The blood on Magali's shirt is a match to, well, Magali. There is no physical evidence linking him to Snow's brutal murder at the rest stop. I'm sure that they made him remove his shirt and checked his arms, chest, and neck for scratches, the defensive marks Jane would have made while fighting for her life. But they're not done with Magali. He's returned to his home state of Rhode Island for parole violations, and police continue trying to build a case. Remember, we're dealing with 1979 technology. There is no DNA testing. Blood testing is still pretty rudimentary. We're looking at secretors versus non-secretors. Something else to mention? If Magali murdered Jane, stabbing her, wrestling her to the ground and stabbing her more while she fought and thrashed trying to get away, I think that he would have been a sweaty, disheveled mess. He would have had blood on his hands, his clothes, and his shoes. And I'd like to think that the trooper who picked up the hitchhiking Magali would have noticed that something was off about him. Police officers are trained to assess people. That's a big part of the job. I don't think that this trooper would have missed obvious signs. Unfortunately, Jane's case will go cold. All they have is Magali and not enough evidence to prosecute him. In 1987, another suspect emerges in Jane's case. 24-year-old Joseph Martin Danks. The Gaylord native was arrested in California for a string of knife attacks and murders. Danks was 16 years old when Snow was murdered, and while a check of records shows that he was likely in Flint, Michigan at a treatment center on the night that Jane was attacked, on May 21st, he was transferred from Flint to a facility in Grayling, a place that he escaped from just two weeks later. Now, Flint to Gaylord, where the murder took place, was a couple of hours away. If he was in Flint, it would have been damn near impossible for him to get up there, commit the murder, and then come back to Flint. Police found that Dank's involvement in the case was unlikely, but when a mentally ill, knife-wielding killer hails from the same area that a bizarre knife attack occurred, you take note and you run it down. Danks, who is now 58 years old, remains incarcerated in California's notorious San Quentin prison. And speaking of prison, Magali was in and out of prison for most of his life. During one of his stays, he allegedly confessed to the murder of Jane Snow. He told his cellmate that he went to the rest area thinking he could steal a car. But when he came across Snow and her two young boys, she fought him and he left without taking her keys. Listeners, this matches how Jane was found. She was stabbed brutally and repeatedly, but she was not robbed. Neither her wallet or her keys were missing. Unfortunately for law enforcement, the cellmate embarked on a prison escape just days after sharing Magali's confession, which ruined his credibility with a potential jury. John Magali died in September of 2017. The cause of death was a suspected overdose. Magali was 66 years old. 
Jane Snow's murder remains open and unsolved, and while Magali was their best suspect, it is possible that he wasn't responsible for what happened to her. If you have information on the death of Jane Snow, please call the Michigan State Police, Gaylord Post, at 989-732-5141. And while I believe that her family would understandably struggle to find any good that came out of Jane's death, in 1979, after her murder, Michigan legislators put forth bills to improve safety at Michigan rest areas, better lighting, increased patrols, and they even went so far as to install emergency phones in some of the more remote locations. Unfortunately, the phones ended up being misused and vandalized. But in the end, all rest areas were equipped with working payphones so that the horrific situation the snowboys found themselves in would not be repeated. In 2021, you can still see some of those protections in effect. In speaking with Jane's sister, who declined to be interviewed for the podcast, she pointed out that the exterior doors to the restrooms are always propped open. Remember, the restroom that Jane was in, it closed behind her, allowing her killer plenty of privacy for the attack. Today, there are also cameras, motion-sensitive lighting, and other improvements. So, the next time you're on a road trip, send up a little prayer of gratitude to Jane Snow and spare a thought for what her boys went through on a spring evening in 1979. What she suffered, what she endured, it made each of us safer on our own journey. And listeners, when I initially covered this case in 2016, I remember being horrified by it. Not just the brutality of the attack on Jane, which must have been terrifying, but my heart broke for what her boys endured. The terror of finding their mother mortally wounded by a stranger like something out of a horror movie. Her sons still miss their mother, and they think of her all the time. The Baraboo family, Jane's parents and siblings, they never fully recovered from losing her. Jane's sister, Mary, I could hear it in her voice when we spoke. What they would really like is an answer. It's been more than 40 years since Jane was murdered. It would mean a lot to finally understand why this happened. Even if the answer died with John Magali, surely he spoke to someone about that night. And listeners, whether you've been here since the beginning, or if you've recently found the podcast, I want you to know how much I appreciate your ongoing support of my work. If you would leave a rating or a review for the show, that would be amazing. And remember, you can find additional true crime content from me on YouTube. The channel is under my name, Nina Instead. There are currently two true crime episodes out and three cocktail episodes available. Audio editing provided by Cesare Gray of Gray Multimedia. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. (laughs) 